The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. We've made tremendous progress. And I'd like to say that most of the credit goes to our extremely efficient International Research and Development Committee. So I would like to thank each and every one of you for your hard work and dedication to our cause. In reviewing this year's progress, let me say that we have been highly effective in conditioning the people's minds to accept our solution to the world's problems. The energy crisis here in the United States was exceptionally successful worldwide, and we expect similar success with our upcoming food shortage. Our labor leaders have made great progress by causing confusion and work stoppages in all areas of the world. Financially, the dollar is being devalued even faster than we could have hoped. Politically, the public has lost total confidence in any form of government. The threat of universal war is a daily possibility. As you know, we ourselves do not need to hold any visible office of leadership. As a matter of fact, it's better that we do not. If we control the finances, news media, Food, transportation, energy, we control everything. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, January 25th, 2024. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's just right. Fade into color. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Released on our video platforms and channels at the end of last week, Robert's nearly two-hour interview with University of Western Ontario's Professor Emeritus Salim Mansour is impossible to fit into our one-hour audio format. Fortunately, we've managed to squeeze all of the fundamentals of their discussion into today's broadcast, and I'm guessing that Salim's critical and concise analysis of how America, quote-unquote, lost the republic, will offer a perspective that you have never heard anywhere else. And once you hear it, you won't be able to unhear it, even against the clamor of all of the other valid competing perspectives on that theme. Your epiphanies will begin right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show. Because, as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. We are joined once again by Salim Mansur, Professor Emeritus at Western University. Good day, Salim. And Happy New Year, by the way. This is our first conversation in 2024. Yes, yes, it is. Happy New Year. Today, we're going to usher in this new year by reflecting on recent political events and discussing what we might expect for 2024. But first, I'd like to preface our discussion with a few words. As a young man, I grew up in Canada in the 60s and the 70s. I idolized the United States of America, and more particularly, its origins and the ideas for which it stood. Today, however, while I still revere the philosophic underpinnings of that great nation and admire its people, I despise what has become of that republic. In any objective sense, 
It could be called a rogue state, impoverishing its own people, engaging in a perpetual war against foreign nations and foreign peoples. It is obviously fundamentally flawed to get to this state. Its current president is a usurper, and the vast majority of congressmen are corrupt in office solely for their own personal fortunes and glory. In my estimation, the beginning of the end of that uh, once great republic may be traced back to at least 1898 and the sinking of the USS Maine and the reporting of that incident by the yellow press of Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. Now, we're not going to get into detail here about that, but I would urge you to look up that incident and how it was reported on and what Congress did because of the yellow journalism of the Pulitzer and Hearst papers. The unscrupulous and corrupt fourth estate led to America's downfall. And this trend of decay continues today where the yellow press is now called the mainstream media. The government is now a cabal of power elites and the people are mere serfs in their own nation, a chattering mob to these ruling elites. Recently, however, there's been a shift in power and information control, most importantly. With the advent of social media and independent journalism, the people are becoming more informed about the true nature of those we have come to now refer to as the deep state or the globalists or the ruling oligarchs. As a result, there is a resistance forming. It's still in its infancy, but growing as a network and as a force. So there's hope. Therefore, that there will be a transition, hopefully peaceful, from rule by the elites to rule by, once again, we the people. Salim, what do you make of my assessment of the globalist juggernaut and our prospects for defeating it? I think your assessment is right on the mark, on the target. How have we arrived here and what are we to expect in the coming year and going forward? You have called America a rogue state, and I agree, it is a rogue state. But it was the man who was running for the highest office, elected office in America in the 2016 election. And it was Donald Trump who coined the term that if he is elected president, he will drain the swamp. So swamp or the rogue state amounts to the same thing. And so the question that we are asking is how has america fallen and fallen so deep and so bad how is a republican constitutional democracy as it was founded in 1776 is now not only a shadow of what it was supposed to be but it is completely contrary to what the founding fathers had established now, and we all know the famous saying of Benjamin Franklin when he was asked in Philadelphia, what have you made, sir? And his famous reply, we have made a republic if you can keep it. And the Americans have not only failed to keep it as a people, but the Americans who were given the responsibility by the people, and they take the oath of office to protect the Constitution, have basically not only abandoned their oath of office, but have gone ahead to emasculate and destroy that oath of office. So how have you arrived here? 
giving the evidence of where we are and how do we go forward. That's what we are confronted with. I would say that the opening of the bracket is the election of President Woodrow Wilson in 1912. And the end of the bracket, where America has completely fallen, is the installation rather than the election of Joe Biden as a 46th president. But with uh, Woodrow Wilson, the 1912 election, number of things begins to happen whose results have now reached the point where we have reached. The making of the post-constitutional America, which is what it is in effect today it is. It is a post-constitutional America that we are living in. Putin, for instance, in his New Year press conference, spoke for something like four hours to the press assembly in Moscow. Putin, what I understand from his biography and having followed him for the last couple of years, is a man who is willing to go to the press, to the fourth estate, and engage with the press, not in sound bites, but in long conversation. Four hours without a note. Can you imagine Joe Biden doing that? He wouldn't be able to do that for four minutes before he has to take recourse to a teleprompter. Putin was reflecting, asking himself, asking the people around him, what has happened to America? And I think this is a question that is being asked by just about every leader or most leaders. They're all asking what has happened to America. And they are searching for answers because they're looking at it from the outside. It is you and I and people like us who are asking the same question, but we're asking it from within. You know, yes. Salim, as well, we're picking on the United States, and quite rightly, but the same argument or discussion could be had about Britain, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Western Europe. And so when we ask the questions about what happened to the United States, we can also fill in the blank and also ask the questions about Britain and Canada as well, and all those other Anglosphere nations and Western nations that were once free. Yes, absolutely. Um, talking about the United States is also talking about the collective West. Last June, puppet President Volodymyr Zelensky warned the public that Russia was planning to attack the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine. There is now talk in Kiev that the real president of Ukraine, Victoria Newland, has become so desperate for NATO troops to enter Ukraine and continue this U.S. proxy war against Russia that she is willing to murder innocent locals with a radioactive cloud and blame it on Russian forces. Independent journalist Gonzalo Lira, who was arrested and left to die in his jail cell by Newland's forces, did an excellent job describing Victoria Newland and the United States agenda in Ukraine. Victoria Newland is carrying out a policy which is very, very, very simple. The American goal, foreign policy goal, is to have a weak and preferably divided Russia. Ukraine, since 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union, has been a cesspool of Western corruption. Oligarchs were not only allowed to rise, but were in fact encouraged to rise by the Western powers, in particular the United States, because the United States figured that by way of these oligarchs, if Russia was corrupt 
If Ukraine was corrupt, it would be easy for Western interests to go into these countries and steal. These countries could be controlled. When Putin arose, the people in the West thought, oh, he's one of our guys. But what they discovered, to their dismay, was that when Putin took power in roughly 1999, he cut a deal with his oligarchs. You stay out of politics and I'll stay out of your grift. But what happened was that slowly over the years, Putin started edging out the oligarchs. And even as he put in his own oligarchs, he started making those oligarchs smaller and weaker, which is what he's been doing for the past 23 years. Had Putin not existed in Russia, Russia would be what Ukraine is today. You have to understand that in a very real sense, Victoria Nuland has been president of Ukraine since 2014. She's like the nexus of all these different interests that want to exploit Ukraine and use Ukraine to attack Russia. Word on the street is that the current commander in chief of Ukrainian forces isn't up for the task of attacking their own nuclear power plant. And so Nuland is looking to replace him with Budinov who will become the next Zelensky if he commits this war crime for the U.S. State Department. If these rumors are being considered by Russia, you can expect a major push to take control of Ukraine before it's too late. Greg Reese reporting. Not your imagination, the globalist 1% elite really does hate you. Yesterday I mentioned how the Davos elite is in a panic that populism is winning. Most spectacularly with Donald Trump's historic wins in Iowa and New Hampshire, in response to which the globalists are toying with a Pentagon-led constitutional coup. Of course, it's not just America. We've seen dramatic populist wins rolling in across the West from Holland to Argentina as the inevitable election calendar finally lets the sovereign people tell the elite what they think about them. Ex-British Prime Minister Boris Johnson summed it up in a recent speech with, quote, the global wokarati are trembling violently, collapsing into a, quote, sheer gibbering funk. Heady stuff. But it raises the question why exactly voters are so violently rejecting the elites, whose countries they hijack. Thankfully, a recent poll from the Committee to Unleash Prosperity lays it out in raw numbers. They commissioned a poll with the respected Rasmussen organization asking only America's 1%, so defined as people with a postgraduate degree and an income over 150000 For starters, America's elite overwhelmingly believe the people have too much freedom, 70% of those expressing an opinion. By the way, non-elite voters overwhelmingly believe the opposite. 80% believe we have too little freedom. Next, the elite believes that teachers, not parents, should be deciding what children are taught, again by 70%. They overwhelmingly trust the government to do the right thing. Almost 80% think we should, quote, strictly ration gas, meat, and electricity for so-called climate change. That rises to 90% among Ivy League graduates, who are the most indoctrinated. Presumably, they assume their incomes or connections will buy their way out. It'll just be us little people eating the bugs. 70% want an immediate ban on gas stoves. 81% want gas-powered vehicles outlawed, starting with, of course, SUVs and pickups. Majorities want to ban air conditioning, non-essential air travel. That would mean effectively banning family vacations. 
Of course, going by current restrictions, these would not apply to private jets or luxury compounds. After all, when you can walk from your bed to your resort-style pool, there is no carbon footprint to track. Finally, and maybe this will help some of our confused media, nearly 90% of these one percenters approve of Joe Biden. Perhaps because they overwhelmingly report their finances are going great by a four to one margin. In case the cocktail party crowd wonders why regular Americans are not feeling the Biden magic. As the poll's authors sum up, people who run America, or at least think they do, live in a bubble of their own construction. So what's next? Brought to you by Unchained.com. This poll was America. But I imagine the gap is similar across the West, including Europe, Argentina. 2024, by sheer coincidence, will have the most elections we've seen in decades. Literally 75% of the countries with free or partially free elections will take place this year. That's over 50 countries. I'd hazard that not in a single country will voters agree with the globalist 1%. The entire four years until the election of 2020 was stolen and Biden was installed, was a war between the government or the rogue state or the swamp or the military-industrial complex and the oligarchs. All of these are relevant definition of what America had become against the people because the attack on Donald Trump was an attack on the people that they did not. The ruling class did not accept the result of what had happened in the 2016 election. And we can see that right through these past eight years, the accelerated process, and that is what strikes us, if it had been gradual and incremental, like the proverbial statement that a frog in water slowly you increase the heat, doesn't feel it till it is boiled. It doesn't flee, it doesn't jump out. But if you ratchet up to boiling temperature immediately, the frog will jump out, but he doesn't. So the incremental process of the destruction of the Republican America had come into force of Woodrow Wilson. The process had begun. And the acceleration took place with Donald Trump, because the ruling class saw that if Donald Trump succeeds and he comes back for a second term, then the entire project of the ruling class will unravel. There were a number of things that took place. Now we can look back and see what the consequences were. And I would say two developments took place immediately with the inauguration of Woodrow Wilson in 1913. In those days, inauguration took place in the month of March. Election took place in November. Inauguration took place in March. Immediately after the inauguration in March, there were two amendments that took place. One was the amendment that brought about the income tax which, in a sense, changed the relationship between the federal government and the states. America is a federation. Each state has its own constitution. Well, income tax changed that relationship because it gave power to the federal government to reach across the state lines into the pocket of every individual. You, know, you were an American, but you were equally an Alabaman. You were equally a Texan. 
So there is a huge change that takes place with the income tax coming in. Now, the federal government can make war without depending upon the state. The second was the amendment, and I think it was the 17th Amendment. The 17th Amendment changed the nature of the election of senators. Article 1, Section 3, this is the original before the amendment. It states, the Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state, chosen by the legislature thereof for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. So until 1913, the 17th Amendment, the senators were appointed by the state. Why was this arrangement conceived and implemented? was that the House of Representatives is the people's house. It is based upon population, and the people elect the representative, which is where it should be. And it is the people who are responsible on the question of taxation, revenue, and so on and so forth, and also on the question of war and peace. It is the House of Representatives, the Congress, that declares the war. So the House of Representatives is the people's house. The Speaker is the people's person. The Senate is the house of the Federation of the states. And each state sending two senators is where comes the question of equality. You might be a small state like New Jersey, but you have two senators. And you might be a big state like Texas or California. You still have two senators. So all the states are equal in the process of legislating in the House, in the Congress. The 17th Amendment changed that. The 17th Amendment brought about the following. The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state, elected by the people thereof for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. In other words, instead of the states appointing the senators, and therefore the senators being responsible to the state and can be recalled by the state back home if those two senators vote against the interests of the state. And who protects the interests of the state? The state legislature, the state governor, and the state legislature. That is the constitution. But with the election of the senators, the state loses control of the senators. What is the difference then between the senators who are elected by the people of the state and the members of the Congress, the House of Representatives who are elected by the state? So both then become open to eventually corruption by the manipulation of the people and the money that is sent to these individuals to get elected. And that's what we have. It's almost the, as if they lost one of their checks and balances. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this has been part of the struggle among the people to return back to the state. You know, when they say the state right, you know, what is the responsibility of the state? The state is supposed to run every aspect of the people's interests within the state and within the federation. The constitution can only, that is, 
what is enumerated. The federal government can only legislate, tax, or act upon what is enumerated in the Constitution. Anything that is not enumerated in the Constitution is in the domain of the state, in the realm of the state. But with this 17th Amendment, which was not immediately noticeable, it was passed, it was propagandized, and it was sold on the notion of democracy. America is not simply a democracy. America is a republican system of government within the Constitution. But now the people say, this is democratic. We are going to elect our senators. Well, lo and behold, you did elect your senator. The consequences of that has played out over the 100 years. That is, once elected, the senators and the congressmen no longer end up representing the people. They end up representing those who elect them, that is the money class. And that which was not discernible, noticeable at the beginning has now become a chasm as wide as an ocean. Just about every major government has been guilty of false flag operations to foment war. America has been guilty of several, but here are just a few. Civilian passengers were murdered when a torpedo hit the Lusitania. Investigations revealed that explosives were inside the ship, which was operated by war profiteer J.P. Morgan. This event is what brought Americans, who were not previously interested in getting involved, into World War I, where they lost over a hundred thousand sons and daughters. They were also not interested in getting involved in World War II, but after breaking Japanese encryption codes, the U.S. government knew of their plans to attack Pearl Harbor, but the big banks were funding both sides and expected massive profits, so they let it happen to encourage Americans to sacrifice nearly half a million of their children in the Second World War. In August of 1964, the USS Maddox and the Turner Joy knowingly lied about being fired upon by North Vietnamese ships. For two hours, they fired at nothing and maneuvered as if under attack. President Johnson was aware of this deception, but kept it secret to initiate war against North Vietnam and to sacrifice over 50,000 Americans. About 3,000 people were murdered on 9-11 in the most notorious false flag in U.S. history. This was used as a catalyst for the endless destruction of several nations that continues today. Professor Stephen Starr, associate of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, was recently on Russia's Solyevev Live, where he discussed a plan being suggested by NATO forces in Germany that stinks of plans for a false flag operation to usher in World War III. They have suggested a scenario wherein Russia sinks an American cruiser in the Black Sea, followed by the United States attacking Russian ships with nuclear warheads, which would then be followed by a Russian nuclear strike against NATO headquarters and a major U.S. nuclear attack on all of Russia. They suggested more than 3,000 strikes within one hour and the destruction of all major cities in Europe and the United States. Professor Starr said this would result in 150 million tons of smoke and soot that would block out 70% of the sunlight in the Northern Hemisphere and last about 10 years. It's important to note that it's been NATO forces alone who have been provoking war with Russia for decades, surrounding their border with missile systems and bioweapons labs, 
and overthrowing Ukraine with CIA color revolutions. The facts show that Russia has been given no choice but to defend themselves against deceptive Western aggression. The anti-human globalist forces that hold a firm grip on America are clearly trying to destroy it from within. If they wanted America to win a world war, then they would not be murdering U.S. troops with the deadly COVID shots, and they would not be manipulating them to castrate themselves under the guise of transgenderism. The globalists want the United States to be plundered and destroyed, but they need a scapegoat to blame it on, and they've clearly chosen Russia for that role. During the American Revolution, Catherine the Great of Russia unofficially supported the colonies by trading with them. Russian ships began delivering hemp, sail linen, and iron to American ports as early as 1763. During the War of 1812, Russia attempted to join as a third-party mediator in support of American independence. In 1863, Russia sent military fleets to New York and San Francisco to put pressure on the British and fight them if necessary. They patrolled the American shores for 10 months. This Russian support of a sovereign America is undoubtedly what led to the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, when the country fell into communist rule for 69 years. Today, Russia has asked for peace, but the evil powers that want endless war cannot survive unity between the East and the West. False flag operations are the modus operandi of the globalists, and war, mass murder, and division is all they desire. Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And our conversation with Salim Mansour continues. The people in Washington, they say whatever they want to say during the election time, but they come to Washington and they are captives of the donor class, whether the donor class are the oligarchs who are financing the Republican Party, the Koch brothers, for instance, you know, or they are financing the Democratic Party, the Israeli lobby or, you know, the hedge fund donors, the Bill Gates, the George Soros, the Jeff Bezos. It doesn't matter. The link between the people and the representative has been cut. From the election of Woodrow Wilson to the election of Joe Biden, this over a hundred plus years, the American people have been lied to consistently on all the major issues of the time. The founding fathers had made a republic. Woodrow Wilson and the people who followed him turned the republic into an empire that began with the Spanish-American War, you know, the sinking of the USS Maine and so on and so forth. But America became involved beyond its borders, beyond its hemisphere, into the affairs of other countries. It went down looking for monsters to destroy, in the words of John Quincy Adam, that America was not made to go out to destroy monsters. It was to protect its own freedom and democracy. 
right? President Washington, the founding father, the, the, the first president in his farewell address said, do not get entangled with the politics of the old world. At that time, the old world and new world was America and Europe. Do not get entangled with them. Don't make alliances with any country. Don't choose and make any one country your special ally. All of these warnings were slowly, incrementally stripped, beginning with the Woodrow Wilson presidency. You know, Would you think that um, the... The reason that the United States did not join the League of Nations after World War One, I, I thought, was part of um, that sentiment that they do not they do not share power with foreigners, foreign potentates, foreign leaders. They will not be subjected to the vote or the whim of other nations. So they did not join the League of Nations. That was my understanding of perhaps why. And yet, of course, post-World War II, 1945, you have the United Nations now. And they they join. Matter of fact, they host it. So do you think that that's perhaps another indication of the fall of the Republic as a sovereign nation wanting to protect its own interests, you know, and not get involved in the affairs of foreign states when they joined the United Nations, whereas before they did not join the League of Nations? Yes and no. I mean, the Republican senators in uh, Washington opposed Woodrow Wilson for a number of reasons, but the primary reason, in my view, was that the president had lied to Americans and taken America into a war. What became subsequently, subsequently, as the 1930s and 40s came around, the argument became that what is happening in Europe is happening because America went into isolation. America went into isolation, one can argue, was going back to America first politics of George Washington and the founding fathers. Because from 1776 and the end of that war, the Paris Treaty of 1783, and then America coming together under a constitution that was passed in 1789, America was not engaged. I mean, Europe had been in war, the Napoleonic Wars and the wars that went on, dynastic wars through the 19th century. America did not participate. America did not go out there. America had its own problems and America dealt with its own problem, rightly or wrongly. The largest problem, the biggest problem came with the Civil War. So going into Europe and becoming involved in the European war was against the very warnings that had been set forward by not only the founding fathers, but carried through in the subsequent administrations that we do not get involved with the old world. We don't get involved with empire making and empire building. But it all began, yes, in 1898 with the Spanish empire beginning to fall apart and America intervened. It was not only Cuba, it was Philippines and so on and so forth. And America started becoming an empire. And what is the disease of an empire? The disease of an empire is empire nullifies and negates freedom at home, just as it engages in coercing people abroad. An empire is coercion. It's running the lives of other people. It's imposition. It's conquest. And ultimately, it is military rule. So whether it was Britain, whether it was France, whether it was Spain, whether it was Holland, Dutch, all of these empires, whatever might have been the charade of democracy at home, 
Now we can look back because the empires are gone. We are looking back and we are understanding the history. Whatever we need to talk about freedom and democracy and parliament was denied to the empire. Take the case of India, the crown jewel of the British Empire, the largest portion of humanity that was run by the British Empire. It was a conquest. And it was an imposition. It was a military rule. It was a charade. Britain ran the empire. Britain ran several hundred million people and their lives. Same thing with the French. Same thing with the Dutch. Same thing with the Belgium in Africa and the Spanish in Latin America and so on and so forth. So the benefits of the empire that is squeezing and plundering and pillaging the empire and brought home to the people of the empire, that is Britain and Holland and France, they benefited from that accumulated wealth that is brought home in whatever form, and the glory of the empire masks the reality of military power and freedom. This is what the Founding Fathers warned against. War and making a war and going to war is the instrument of all imperial powers, all fascist power, because it gives the most massive source of control over the people, coercion. You go to war abroad and you coerce the people at home. You become what George Bush came to define after 9-11. You are with us or against us. Now, after Pearl Harbor, which American would be against taking out the Japanese? So immediately, the balloon of America first got punctured. Now we can see, looking back, that it was by design. It was by design what happened. And so, and out of that war, a war economy brought America out of depression. The depression that the America hadn't got out of until Pearl Harbor. So the war economy, control, and going beyond its own republic to run the affairs of the world became the new destiny of America. America always looked and talked about its manifest destiny, but manifest destiny was in the continent of North America, the American expansion across the Appalachian, across the Missouri into becoming a continental republic. But now the manifest destiny is to rule the, the world. It is in that context, the gravity of the Second World War as what had happened the technology had developed and we had entered the nuclear age. And the devastation of that war was so immense that the idea that somehow an international organization, which the League had failed to do in Europe to the lead up of the war, Second World War in 1939, September 1939, must be brought about. And so the United Nation. And the flip side of the argument is that the United Nation would be empowered to maintain a balance of power, great powers, to secure peace among the great powers. You know, the opening first article, the preamble, it is to prevent another war at the war that has happened. You know, there was no reluctance, no opposition anymore within America to joining an international organization because America would be the leading power. Europe was flat on its back. And it has uh, a veto in the Security Council, too. That's right.
here we might take note of it. You know, it was America was not only had emerged as the military power that had financed the Allies against Germany and Japan, the United States has emerged also as the technological power, the nuclear breakthrough. America was the only nuclear power country in 1945. Uh, so America was a leader in science, technology, finance, and the America was an economic giant. More than 50% of the global GDP, excess of 50% of the global GDP was within America, one country with over 50% of the GDP, the global GDP. So all of that combined to make sure that this would be America's century in the sense that America would be at the helm of affairs and run it. So far, so good. But the downside, the worm in this arrangement is that America was slipping into becoming a full-fledged empire the American empire, which is completely antithetical to the notion of America as it was founded in 1776, a republican constitutional order, a democracy that is a republic of we the people. Now, post-1945 to where we are is the thin edge of the wedge in the American system of government and American society starts widening over time. So from 1945 to 2015, when Donald Trump calls out America is a swamp or rogue state, as you have called out, and I agree with that, that America is now the world's biggest rogue state, the biggest swamp, the most dangerous enemy of freedom based upon individual rights is America. How did this come about? Well, it came about because America became an empire. And becoming an empire, America became a war-mongering state, a country, a power engaged in perpetual war for, quote-unquote, perpetual peace. I found it fascinating, Celine, that when I'm reading about all of these things of late, I try to identify when was the first inkling that things were being run not by our elected representatives, but by people behind the scenes, the puppet masters. And it was Prouty's book on JFK, which referenced in 1940, this is during the war, Britain was in the war at least, and it was a bombing of Rotterdam, and Winston Churchill was overheard saying that they're being driven by a high cabal that there are forces that allowed this to happen or maybe orchestrated these things. And it's out of control of somebody like a Winston Churchill, a leader of Britain. And he's referring to somebody behind him, higher up, <laughs> a high cabal of people behind the scenes pulling everybody's strings. Now we call it the deep state. That seems unstoppable because we can't put a finger on who's responsible. Your thoughts? Ultimately, what is the cabal? That collection of individuals or people or interests that controls the lifeblood of an economy, the banking system, and therefore finances it. And that cabal had arisen in Europe and would become transported to America. America did not have a Federal Reserve until 1913. That was another amendment that was brought in. One of the things that we need to 
understand and keep in, in our mind. And especially now, looking back, we are looking back, we're reaching more than 100 years to explain the implosion of the American Republic, is that the Civil War itself was not simply about slavery. The storyline is it is slavery. But when the Civil War broke out, there was no issue of slavery on the table at that time. A lot of it had to do with state rights and that the federal government, that is the Confederacy state that became eventually Confederacy state, saw that Washington was interfering in what is in the domain of the individual states and the constitution. So there were states north of the Mason-Dixie line that had become free states in the sense that they were not slave states. And the states south of Mason-Dixie line were slave states. They had two different cultures. But the issue of slavery was embedded in the issue of state rights. The way people talk about slavery these days, you'd think it was a uniquely American thing that we invented in 1619. But slavery throughout history has been the rule, not the exception. The Sumerians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, Romans, the Arabs, British, the early Americans. Did Columbus commit atrocities? Of course. But people back then were generally atrocious. <laughs> Everybody who could afford one had a slave, including people of color. The Holy Bible is practically an owner's manual for slaveholders. The word slave comes from Slav, because so many Slavic people were enslaved, and they're as white as the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> Who do you think gathered the slaves from the interior of Africa to sell to slave traders? Africans who also kept their own slaves. We're a species prone to making others of our species our bitch. <laughs> I've said it before and I'll say it again. Humans are not good people. And the capacity for cruelty is a human thing, not a white thing. That's the truth, even though it doesn't jibe with the current narrative. But in today's world, when truth conflicts with narrative, it's the truth that has to apologize. chemicals in the water that turn the freaking frogs gay. Do you understand that? Turn, turn the, the freaking frogs gay. Serious crap. Gay. Frogs freaking frogs. It's not funny. I'm going to say it real slow for you. InfoWarrior Alex Jones has been right about a lot of things, frogs being perhaps the most famous. However, in an interview with RT on the recent gathering of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Jones, as seems usual, focuses on the symptoms of the power abuse in the West, but not on those that actually wield it, nor its causes. Globalists, the elites, and the Chicoms are Jones's focus, the latter being the group he believes controls Hollywood. 
While he is right that transnational business elites seek power at the expense of the liberties which are at the core of the U.S. national project, what he misses is the fact that the United States government has long been bought and sold and is becoming apparent to even the most casual of observers. It's pretty well known and clear that Washington is a wretched hive of scum and villainy. And its odious institutions and policymakers are bought and sold by lobbying groups and the influence that these lobbying groups have over policy. According to a February 2021 account in Time magazine, Joe Biden became president because of a, quote, well-funded cabal of powerful people who were fortifying the election by working together behind the scenes to influence perceptions change rules and laws, steer media coverage, and control the flow of information, closed quote. We've talked about a number of pillars bringing about the destruction and the downfall of the once great United States, journalism, information control, education, uh, money, devolution from states' rights down to more of uh, electing your senators. But what else would you add? The primary thing I would add or, or emphasize is already added, but I emphasize is war. And what you see after 1945 is America is engaged in war right around the world. All, always. A forever all, war. Yeah, forever war. So the president that tried to contain that and reverse that, it began with Eisenhower who warned the American people. His parting farewell message in 1961 January was a warning to the Americans about the military-industrial complex. And the very next president, John F. K., after the Cuban Missile Crisis, came to the conclusion that the military-industrial complex has not only to be contained, but it needs to be, you know, brought down. The book that everybody should read is This War is a Racket by one of the most highly decorated military officer, General Smedley Darlington Butler, who died in 1940. He was a Marine Corps general, and he spent all his life in warfare for the U.S. corporation, not for America, not for the Republic. That's the book about war is a racket. And that's the racket that America became after 1945, despite the warnings of President Eisenhower and the effort of John F. K. So as we try to wrap this up, the end is the warfare, and the warfare is not simply against a targeted enemy that is fabricated and created. Soviet Union was once an ally. Soviet Union then became an enemy during the Cold War. The Cold War ended. The Soviet Union got dismantled, and nevertheless, America started pushing NATO, whose function was now basically well past the expiry date. Yes. The NATO was created for the containment of Soviet Union on the European continent from advancing westward. Well, there was no more Soviet Union. And so the eastward expansion of NATO ultimately led to the Ukraine war. These are the proxy wars. These are pretexts that are created for America's military-industrial complex to keep churning out its profit-making venture. I counted right at the outset of the special military operation in February 2022 with you that this war is going to end in a disaster for the collective West. 
And it is precisely it has ended in a disaster. You know, Ukraine has been destroyed. By whom? Not by Russia. But that is the common narrative in the collectivists in Canada, where Canada saluting in the parliament, 338 member parliament, not a single voice in the parliament saying, you know, hang on, halt, pause. Who are we saluting? We were saluting not only a Ukrainian Nazi president, Zelensky, we were saluting a Waffen-SS former soldier that fought against the Soviet Union when Soviet Union was our ally. The complete perversion of our political system. How did this come about? Well, it came about with the leading country of the West, that is the United States, rotting in its head abandoning its Republican values, the values of freedom. Well, Salim, we started off the, the show by saying that we'll cover the past and then make some sort of prognostication about 2024. So 2024, election year, Donald Trump riding high in the polls. Remember in 2016, he was riding really low in the polls and won. So now he's really high in the polls. Obviously, the people love him and he would get elected if this was a fair uh, election. The question is not that Donald Trump will not win if there is a fair election. The question is whether we will have an election. Some people are suggesting that since all of the tactics of the Democrats and the Biden corrupt immoral regime are failing, all of the indictments are failing, all of the rhetoric by the yellow journalists are failing, and the people love Donald Trump, and he would get an, elected in a landslide. Some, for example, Tucker Carlson, are suggesting perhaps the only thing left for the deep state to do is what they did with John F. Kennedy and Dealey Plaza in Texas. What do you think? The deep state have been trying to assassinate Donald Trump, and he has so far been successful in evading it. In other words, there are forces that are protecting him. I think in that sense, one can speculate that the American armed forces is split down the center, that there are those who are protective of Donald Trump as the former president and are providing him that security. And then there are those who are with the installed president, and they are waging both domestically a war and, of course, waging a war abroad. So 2024 is a continuation of wars. So there you have it. America is now ready to have immigration and migration as a way, as a tool, an instrument of creating a mercenary army instead of a citizen's army, because the Americans themselves, particularly the Americans from the flyover country that had been the basic recruiting base of the American military, are no longer joining the American armed forces because of wokeism that has penetrated the culture of the American military. And so here we have it. We began with the observation observation that one of the features of this breakdown of America as a Republican society and a Republican order is the war against his own people. We can see that is accelerating too. And the same thing is in Canada, same thing in Europe. I mean, in 2023, we saw the Dutch farmers coming out. 2024 began with the German farmers coming out in massive numbers. In 2022, it was the Yellow West in France that came out. None of them have disappeared. The AFD in Germany has become more and more prominent, defending a German national interest. In Canada, the same thing happened in 2022. The Freedom Convoy was attacked 
emergency power was used to dismantle it, just as in America in 2021, the J6 movement to protest against what was happening in American politics was attacked and called an insurrection and people were arrested and they are still being held in prison. Same thing in Canada, people arrested in the trucker convoy movement are being held in prison. So the governments have turned rogue in the West and the governments have become, in a sense, a mirror image of what we used to see in the East with China, the Tiananmen Square massacre, if you all remember that in the transition, or Soviet army moving into Czechoslovakia, or Hungary, or Poland. Well, here we have the American army or the American people in uniform, the law enforcement agencies striking against their own people in Canada, in Europe. So this huge inversion that has taken place, where it is headed? What I see is the Eurocentric age is coming to an end, and with it, America's unipolar hegemony has basically broken down, and we are in the transition phase of a new rearrangement in which the global South will start playing a more and more important role in world politics, and we are in that sense uncharted water. You know, when I began, I mentioned how much I, I love the United States and the idea and the concept of it, but despise their current form and government. And one of the things I really despise about it, Salim, is that it has now made me root for the other guy. You know, I can't support the United States in, I don't know, anything that it has done globally at all. And its philosophy these days is antithetical to the philosophy of the founding fathers. So, for that, I, I cannot forgive them. Anyway, it's a fascinating discussion. It could go on. There are so many things and so many facets to the decline and fall of the American Republic that we could go on forever talking about it. But I thank you for your input and your knowledge. Thanks, Salim. Thank you, Rob. Thank you very much. Uncharted waters indeed. Will it be an empire or a constitutional republic? Time will tell, but so far it's beginning to look like the empire strikes out. And for that reason, we'll do whatever it can to strike back. Who knows, with a bit of luck, we may all still be here to talk about it when you join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the clothes. About 10 days after 9-11, I went through the Pentagon and I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and, and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz. I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the Joint Staff who had used, used to work for me. And one of the generals called me and he said, sir, you gotta come in. you got to come in and talk to me a second. I said, well, you're too busy. He said, no, no. He says, we've made the decision we're going to war with Iraq. This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, we're going to war with Iraq, why? He said, I don't know. <laughs> he said, I guess they don't know what else to do. He said, I guess it's like, we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. So I came back to see him a few weeks later and by that time, we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just, 
He said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense's office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. I said, is it classified? He said, yes, sir. I said, <laughs> I said well, don't show it to me.